Colleges and universities have earned a reputation as bastions of knowledge and as one of our nation's most treasured institutions. But along with ongoing budget challenges, there's a widespread crisis of confidence about the value of higher education in today's world. A new book co-authored by St. Louis's own Holden Thorpe, provost of Washington University, digs into what's really going on and what needs to change. It's titled, A Higher Calling, Rebuilding the Partnership Between America and Its Colleges and Universities. Producer Evie Hemphill recently sat down with him to discuss it. She started by asking him about some of the misconceptions that exist about college these days. Yeah, I think one of them is most, probably the most important one is about how much people pay. Uh, folks look at the sticker prices of these schools and they think that uh, that's what everybody's paying. But the truth is that uh, particularly at selective private universities and other uh, private colleges, the majority of folks aren't paying the full price because Thankfully, colleges have financial aid programs that allow folks who can't pay uh, the full price to pay less. And so, um, you know, one, one thing that often surprises people is that in a lot of states, it's cheaper to go to a school like WashU if you're a low-income student than it would be to go to your state university. And in Missouri and Illinois, that happens to be true. There was a tension throughout the book, I found, between the need for institutions to make the case for the real-world practicality of higher ed, as well as the need to stand firmly behind the belief that learning and knowledge are worthwhile endeavors for their own sake, um, and that human beings are more than simply future workers or job creators, right? Does that tension feel more like a tightrope these days to administrators? It does feel like a tightrope, and part of what we are advocating is that we do a better job of telling sort of both sides, the folks on either side of this tightrope, what's really going on. For the last 50 or 60 years since uh, the end of World War II when the federal government launched the GI Bill and decided to start funding uh, research at universities, there's been this partnership. The partnership is that the federal government uh, and state governments that are supporting state universities provide a lot of support for research and they stay out of the day-to-day -day decisions about what research gets done and how, what, how teaching is done. Uh, but the problem we have is that uh, we haven't told each side the full story. We go to talk to politicians and we say, oh, don't worry, we're going to train a workforce for you. We're going to start companies that uh, produce jobs in the local area. We're going to develop real estate and create jobs in St. Louis or wherever it is. And then we go to the faculty council meeting and we say, don't worry, everybody, we got you covered. We got academic freedom. Uh, we're going to protect <laughs> tenure. Um, you know, we are going to ask you to help us run the university. And both sides have a fair criticism, which is They've never really been explained, never really had it explained, that there's this partnership there. So when you go to faculty members who are skeptical about all this and say, you know, we really need you to help us make sure that students have good uh, outcomes when they leave here, and we need you to help us make the case for higher education, they're right when they say, well, you never really asked us to do that. Yeah. And when you go to the other side and say, tenure and academic freedom and shared governance are an indispensable part of what we're doing, 
that it's fair for them to say, well, last time you were here, you were just talking about all the jobs that the university is creating. And so we need a resonance between these two groups so that we can get people together around our common interests. One of the biggest disconnects, I guess, that struck me reading the book was, I, I'm not remembering the exact statistic, but it was something about most people involved in higher ed strongly believe that students are graduating prepared for, for the work world and for their first job and everything. And it was something like 11% of business leaders were confident, just 11%. Is that right? That's correct. Yes. And it is, uh, it's something that, a gap that we're going to have to somehow bridge. Uh, we, if, if only 11%, I mean, <laughs> I, I tell my faculty colleagues, I wish it weren't the case, but it's true that the number one reason that college students give for going to college is so that they can get a better job when they get out. Uh, if we were going to try to convince the world that that wasn't a good thing, we should have done that 50 years ago, not now. It's very hard to roll that back. And so if only 11% of business leaders feel that colleges and universities are producing graduates that are ready for the working world, we have to somehow figure out how to bridge that gap. We either need, you know, as, as Chris Newfield who's a higher education critic at UC Santa Barbara says in the book, you know, we're on the hook to figure this out. And so we either need experiences that students can have while they're in school that are somehow academically connected to the things that they're studying. That's the ideal. Or we're going to have to figure out some way for them to have much more applied experiences before they leave. And you're quick to say that colleges and universities are not businesses or should not be run like the same as businesses and that students are not customers. I think that's really early on that you say that in the book. At the same time, you argue that the several thousand institutions in the U.S. need to adopt innovative and entrepreneurial approaches um, in order to survive and really thrive. Um, what does that look like? Yeah, so I think what we're pointing out here is this disconnect that happens when people see correctly that there are significant problems with the financial model here and they think that the right way to fix that is to get folks who've been in the business world and turned around businesses to come uh, try to fix these financial problems in universities and this doesn't really work very well because um, the customs and traditions and uh, uh, principles that we have around how to deal with knowledge and faculty are very foreign to a lot of business leaders. And so what we're saying is uh, that a lot of different people are going to need to collaborate to make higher education sustainable in this country. And it's going to require the folks who come at this from the business side to understand the indispensable elements of colleges and universities. And it's going to require us to do a better job of getting our community to see that these financial uh, and political, frankly, problems that we have are ones that we can't just ignore. We're going to have to work, come together with folks to try to solve them. Perhaps one of the biggest consequences of some of the perceptions surrounding higher ed has been the cuts in state and federal funding to university budgets and to research. Is the onus on the colleges and universities to find a way back to, to regain that funding? Well, we believe strongly that we need to regain public support because when you look at the, the numbers, 
if we continue to transfer the cost of public higher education away from state governments and onto students and families and to the institutions, you know, that's what's causing a lot of this instability. Uh, and so we need to do a better job of gaining public support. But in order to do that, we need to come to terms with a lot of these disconnects. It's sometimes people inside the university think if we just do a better job of explaining how timeless the knowledge is and how free inquiry is so important that the uh, politicians will just come around. And our point is that if you look at the history of higher education in America going all the way back to the Morrill Act, you know, in the Morrill Act, which was in, in the 1860s, that created the land-grant universities and it asked the, the universities agreed in accepting those land grants to train students in the practical arts. And so this idea that students are going to need to be employed when they get out isn't something that recent college administrators cooked up while reading columns by Tom Friedman or Fareed Zakaria. This is something that has been in the American discourse for more than a hundred years. And so uh, we believe it's highly unlikely that we're going to get public support if we don't somehow cross this bridge and help each side understand where they're coming from. And administration is partly at fault because, as I said, we've been telling two different stories to the two different audiences, and that's not giving each side the respect that they deserve. There's a lot of discussion about changing demographics and the possibilities for making higher education more affordable and accessible to students from a wide range of backgrounds. Um, thinking especially about St. Louis and WashU, um, can you talk a little bit about any specific initiatives WashU has started to, um, in order to address that need? Well, we have done a lot to expand financial aid over the last uh, four or five years. I think a lot of people would have followed uh, various news articles that called attention to the relatively low number of low-income students at Washington University and the relatively low numbers of people of color. Uh, we've been able over the last five years to double the number of students who are eligible for Pell Grants. We talk a lot about Pell Grants in the book. Those are grants that the federal government gives to cover part of the tuition for low-income students. So we're now up to 13% of our students eligible for Pell Grants. We're over 10% pretty consistently for African Americans and very close to 10% for uh, Latina and Latino students. Um, and you know these are things that institutions need to be pushed to do and w the right way for the Washington University to do that is not necessarily the right way for every university to do that and so there's an interplay between the sticker price and the financial aid program and who gets in that's very nuanced and pretty complicated and so what we're hoping to do in the book is to get people to read at least for a little while about how uh, how nuanced this whole idea of who gets into college and how much they pay really is. It surprised me to hear that sometimes a um, public institution might be more costly for a lower income student than a, a private institution. A lot of people are surprised by that and what it has to do with is how much more financial aid uh, a student might get on top of their Pell Grant and plus how expensive it might be 
to have room and board at your school. So if you look at uh, universities, public universities that might have $10,000 in tuition, the Pell Grant's $5,600. You know, they, it's at least 10, maybe 12, maybe $15,000 to live. So the, the total cost might be 25, and how much of that the state university is gonna make up varies all over the place, all, all around the country. So it happens to be the case in, uh, for example, for the University of Missouri and for the University of Illinois and Champaign, both of those schools, when you work through how much a Pell-eligible student pays, is less than what they would pay at Washington University, where, you know, fortunately we have the resources to provide more financial aid to our low-income students. And this surprises people because they look at uh, the University of Missouri, and I don't know precisely what their tuition is, but it's probably eight or ten thousand dollars. And they look at Washington University's, and ours is over fifty. And they, it's hard for them to understand that there are a lot of people coming to Washington University for less than they're paying to go to the University of Missouri. Yeah, and I would think that that just seems so out of reach um, on first glance. If there's not education happening even at the high school level. Um, People yeah. miss that. Yes, and we need to do much better in that. I'm involved in something called the College Advising Corps, which I was involved in from the start. The College Advising Corps is a organization that recruits uh, recent college graduates to work in schools where we believe there would be a number of low-income students who can get into outstanding colleges, and we work one-on-one -on -one with those students when they're you know, often in an environment where the guidance counselor at that school wouldn't have the opportunity to help them in the way that they need, and we help them get their FAFs, their financial aid form filled out and make sure they're applying to the best colleges they can get into. But yes, the uh, again, it's a very complicated system. It would It's appealing to think somehow you could unwind the whole thing and make it simpler, but again, over the last 50 years, it's only gotten more and more complicated, so it's kind of hard to think that we're going to somehow back up and make this simpler. So what we're going to have to do is take the responsibility for getting more people to understand how all this works. And again, that's one of the things that we're trying to do with the book. That's WashU Provost Holden Thorpe discussing the state of higher education in America, which is the subject of his new book. We'll return to this conversation in a moment. This is St. Louis on the Air on St. Louis Public Radio, 90.7 KWMU. Thank you for listening to this St. Louis on the Air podcast supported by University College at Washington University with undergraduate and graduate programs part-time evening and online. University College at Washington University offering world-class education within reach. And we're back to producer Evie Hemphill's conversation with Washington University Provost Holden Thorpe about his new book on trends in higher education. This isn't the, the longest book. It's, it's a fairly quick read for a book on higher ed, I thought, um, by the way. But one sort of sector of university life that I was curious to hear more about was the role of staff in hopefully rebuilding the partnership between America and its higher ed institutions. Do you see a, a significant role for staff? There seems to be more and more staff, just numerically speaking, as part of these academic communities. Yes, thank you for raising that. So our we, we've written two books that um, uh, the first one was read by more people than we thought it would be, and we're hoping the same thing is true for this. And part of how we think we've done that 
is by uh, making them short enough that uh, you can read them in a, in a few hours. Uh, we like to say, you know, a cross-country plane flight is kind of what we're, <laughs> what we're aiming for. And so there are a number of things that we left out, and we, we definitely were aware that we were not saying as much about what the staff can do. But there is a point in there that's really important, which is that there's a Gallup survey that a lot of people pay attention to. And it shows a number of things that help college students thrive more when they get out. And one of them is that uh, if you have a mentor who is concerned about your hopes and dreams, that you're much more likely to succeed when you leave college. And one of the surprising findings is it doesn't matter whether that mentor is a tenured faculty member or whether that is uh, somebody who works in student affairs or your residential college director or somebody in the career center. And that's a startling finding to a lot of people, but it's empowering when you think about the fact that everyone working at the university has the opportunity to inspire and nurture the students. And so the staff playing a role in that is incredibly important. And many other ways enabling research and teaching and certainly there could have been a whole chapter about the staff and uh, the way that they add to the university. And you do touch on the situation of adjunct professors and part-time instructors in higher education and you seem to suggest that the situation does need to change to a certain degree around adjuncts. Um, in St. Louis as elsewhere there seems to be some change afoot particularly with um, St. Louis adjunct instructors unionizing on certain campuses. How has WashU responded to that? Well, I think uh, some folks who follow the news here would know that the part-time uh, faculty, uh, which typically you would refer to those folks as the adjuncts, uh, they did uh, form a union at Washington University and we uh, negotiated a contract with them and they're happy with that contract. And um, so I think that that was a solution to the problem that we're talking about, which is that there are a lot of part-time faculty teaching at all of the universities all around St. Louis, and those folks are doing very important work for the university and not being compensated in a way that's commensurate with what they are adding to the educational mission. And one of the things that I observed when we went through all that was how surprised a lot of tenured faculty, for example, and department chairs were about the situation for adjuncts. So one of the things we advocate in the book is not necessarily a solution to this, but just asking the entire university community to become more informed about the situation with the adjuncts, because a lot of times what you'll have is a very strange thing where a tenured faculty member will ask for, for example, time off to work on their book. You hire an adjunct to cover the section that they're not teaching. And then a couple years later, that same tenured faculty member will come to you and say, why are you mistreating the adjuncts? Well, okay, the administration deserves part of the blame for that, but the tenured faculty are also playing a role in creating the need for more adjuncts. And we don't really have a prescription for that, except that we would just think more people need to be aware of the dynamics of this. And speaking of tenure, um, 
you make an argument for the value of it among faculty as a practice that's long been in place and probably should continue, um, both from a recruitment and retention standpoint and in terms of academic freedom. Um, are there concrete ways, though, that universities can can continue tenure um, while having tools to, say, crack down on a powerful bad actor? Ah, yes. Well, so... <laughs> Uh, as you, you did a great job of, of stating our arguments for tenure, I mean, one of the things that we believe is very important is that as we talk about most of these institutions are permanent institutions and administrators do stay around a long time at Washington University, thankfully for us, but uh, at a lot of schools, administrators turn over pretty frequently, students come and go. And so what's the permanent constituency, the conscience, if you will, of the university? That's the tenured faculty. So that's kind of the philosophical point. There's also an economic point, which is we pay tenured faculty much less than we would if they didn't have tenure. And that's a cost savings for the university. Uh, you're bringing up another point, which is that sometimes there are uh, problems that occur with tenured faculty, either because uh, of actions that they might have taken that are not consistent with the values of the university or you know another thing that gets a lot of attention is when tenured faculty uh, hang around the university for a long time uh, long after their teaching and, and research has become uh, has been at the level that it had been. That latter part we feel is almost a negligible problem. Those, those cases sometimes get a lot of attention but when you look at the overall cost savings that come from tenure, there's not a lot of wasted cost that comes from uh, faculty members who abuse tenure later in their career. The, the part with dealing with uh, tenured faculty who don't espouse the, the values of the university is a difficult one, um, but that's where shared governance becomes very important because as we say in the book, one of the protected responsibilities of faculty is to advise the university uh, administration about when someone might have violated the norms to the extent that they uh, should be relieved of a tenured position. And I believe most administrators don't take advantage of that as much as we should. Well, we just have, I think, a couple more minutes. Um, despite outlining some immense challenges, the book felt hopeful to me about both the present and the future of higher ed in the U.S. Is that reflective of your own perspective about where things are at? Yes, I still believe firmly, and I wouldn't be able to get up and go to work every day if I didn't, that America's colleges and universities are an extraordinary force for good, that they're institutions that have enormous staying power, been around for almost a, a thousand years, and one of our points is that, you know, we don't agree with the people who say that there are some disruptive forces that are going to radically change higher education. And so some other people who write in our genre write books that say something like the end of college or uh, things like this. We we'd actually don't believe that there's going to be radical change in colleges and universities because if you look at the history as we try to outline briefly, it's all more or less going in the same direction that overall uh, people believe that a college education is an important 
uh, part of becoming an educated citizen and that the knowledge that we create is incredibly important. And I don't, we don't expect that to change. And so what we're trying to do is to get everyone to understand what's really going on, to get the audiences on different, from different perspectives. So, you know, we have kind of the people who criticize universities in the public and the inside folks, but then within the university, we have alumni and students and trustees and faculty and uh, part-time faculty and full-time fixed-term faculty and staff, and all of these folks have slightly different perspectives and understandings. And so we believe if we can bring them all together with one definition, then that's a way for us to do even better going forward and get a lot more public support back. I wondered if you had a specific audience in mind for this book. Um, I, I, you also teach a course on higher ed, like the topic of higher ed, is that correct, with students? That's correct, <laughs> yes. Higher Education Administration is the title, but it's got a lot about the politics of higher education and uh, a lot about how hard some of these things are. So the students seem to enjoy that when we have a good time. Yeah. Is the book aimed mostly at administrators or a broader audience? Uh, well, we're hoping a broader audience. The, uh, I think inside the university, there's, I hope, an audience for it because almost everybody who's read it, even people who spent their whole career at a university, have told us there was something in there that they didn't know about how everything works. But ideally, what we hope is that, for example, when someone goes on the governing board, of a university and they need to get up to speed quickly. That's partly why the short format is uh, important to us, that they could pick this up and uh, learn a lot about the history of higher education and a lot about the customs and traditions we have and why they're important and do that fairly quickly. So uh, we're hoping a lot of new trustees and outside stakeholders will pick this up so that they can um, get up to speed and join in the, the conversation that we hope will rebuild public support for higher education in the country. That was WashU Provost Holden Thorpe talking with producer Evie Hemphill about his new book, co-authored with Buck Goldstein of the University of North Carolina. It's titled, Our Higher Calling, Rebuilding the Partnership Between America and Its Colleges and Universities. Podcast episodes of St. Louis on the Air are available at stlpublicradio.org, or you can subscribe for free on Apple Podcasts, the new Google Podcast app, or elsewhere. St. Louis on the Air is a production of St. Louis Public Radio, 90.7 KWMU. Thank you for listening. I'm Don Marsh. <laughs>